0: This microphone's working, is it? Yes? Check. No? Just use this one. We're going to use this one. We'll use this one there then. Okay. You'll see in your bulletin that our sermon is about the Son of Man who is exalted, based out of Daniel chapter 6 and 7. We're actually going to start where our first scripture reading was, in Psalm 8, because I'd like to, if you're willing to follow along and not fall asleep, and hopefully this will not just be boring, but amazing to see how God has revealed himself to us through the scriptures. I'm convinced that the Bible's an amazing book, that it's not just a book written by humans. It's an amazing book. And sometimes when you can see something that goes through the whole Bible and tie it all together, uh, it helps you appreciate all the more the divine author of this book. At the same time, I'm convinced that if we take this route of Psalm 8, then Daniel 6, then Daniel 7, then Matthew 26, as you see in your bulletin, you're going to better understand who Jesus is and for those of you that may not be familiar with Jesus in your personal life, that, that's, that's the most important thing I can give you today, it is the vision of who Jesus is, to lift him up, to exalt him. We gather together this morning, it says at the first top part of your bulletin, to exalt Jesus, the Son of Man. So who is Jesus and who is the Son of Man and what do we mean by that? And it first begins by us looking at Psalm 8 again, Okay. So in Psalm 8, you will see that at the beginning and end, this is a poem. It's a poetic meditation of Genesis chapter 1. So if you don't know, Genesis chapter 1 tells us about our creator God and he making humans in his own image and making all of the world that we see. And so he says, "O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now what's that word majestic a description of? And the answer would be, king so Genesis 1 is about the king who has authority that when he speaks everything listens like a king would he has authority over all of creation the heavens and the earth the sky and the seas how majestic is your name in all of the earth you have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger And now here's the part where I want you to dial in a little bit. Verses 3, 4, and 5. The psalmist is now meditating as he looks up at the heavens. And what he means by that is the sky, which includes the sun and the moon and the stars. Just what he makes clear. The work of your fingers that you have set in place. His question then is, in comparison to the heavens, then I look at humans and I say, Why? Why did Genesis 1 say, out of all of the creation that you made, at the very crown of that creation, you made male and female in your image? Why? Why did you crown them, as you look in verse 5, with glory and honor? You made them just a little lower than the heavenly beings. There's all kinds of translation issues that we're going to pass over, but for the moment it's saying, humans aren't God. But they're just a little lower than God. They're crowned with glory and honor. That's what Genesis 1 means when it says you are made in God's image. You are crowned with glory and honor. This is a little quiz right now. I'm looking for some audience participation. I have said that image of God means something. And here's Phil's shorthand of image of God. Could somebody please tell me that they have learned something from my teaching? And tell me what's my shorthand description of image of God? Anyone? Image of God means that you are a prince and princess. Well, let's never forget that ever again, boys and girls. You are a prince and princess. Psalm 8 is making this abundantly clear, is it not? What does it mean to be a human? Crowned, glory, honor. You are, are you the king? Are you the king over all creation? No, no, you're made a little lower than the spiritual beings or God himself, depending on how you want to do that translation. But is your status that of a slave, as a pauper, as somebody who has no dignity, no rights, no value? Your only job is to feed the gods and take care of them. No, 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 you are a partner with God. You are a prince or a princess. Is that the way you think about yourself? This is page one of the Bible. Psalm 8 is a meditation on page one and so when you see this phrase, what is man? And that's the Hebrew word Adam. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Adam and Eve. It's the same word by the way. Human is what the definition of Adam's name means. So there's the proper name Adam and then there is the Hebrew word Adam which means human. So what is human? What is Adam that you are mindful of him? And here's what he's doing. He's saying, as I look out at all the glory of the stars in the sky, you and I think, well, yeah, stars in the sky are cool. We've got NASA, and they've helped us see a lot more than what these ancient people saw. These ancient people would have thought that the stars and the moon and the, the sun were gods. Hebrew Jewish people wouldn't have thought that. But they would have known that they are heavenly realities. And as you see shooting stars, you're thinking, whoa, something's going on up there. Imagine being a primitive person that doesn't have NASA. And you're looking up at the stars and you're thinking, wow, the glory of the sky. The sun, moon, and stars. And in comparison to what they see as these heavenly type symbols of the stars in the skies. Humans? These wee little Humans? You're, you're mindful of us. You crowned us with glory and honor. That's the point of this psalm. Is It is a breathtaking step back to say, wow. You, you gave us that sort of dignity and value. And what's so cool about this is that at the beginning and end of the psalm it says, how majestic is your name. This does not decrease his glory. That he increases our value and dignity and worth. When a artist makes an amazing sculpture, when you are amazed at that sculpture, that gives glory to the artist. And as you behold the sculpture, you say, wow, the honor, the glory that I see in that sculpture points back to the artist. When you go to the museum, the artist does not want you to gaze at himself, or the picture in the frame next to the sculpture, oh, here is Leonardo da Vinci who made this sculpture. He wants you to gaze at the sculpture. Because as you gaze at the sculpture, you'll see the beauty of the artist. That is what is happening in Psalm 8. And it uses our phrase for this message, the son of man. Ben Adam. Son of man, meaning human. It's parallelism. Notice the parallelism of verse 4. What is Adam or the son of man, it's the same thing. So, early on we need to realize that God gave humans prince and princess authority to share his partnership of creation. Notice the language of ruling and having dominion. Is God the ultimate ruler? Yes, but is he in partnership with humans to rule together over the plants and animals and the creation that was made? So, In order to understand Daniel 6 and 7, you must understand the storyline of the Bible. And we're using just Psalm 8 to dive into that storyline to say that God made the world where humans are crowned with glory and honor. They're sharing God's partnering and ruling as prince and princess. So before we quickly move to Daniel 6 and 7, aren't there just massive applications for you and me about this point in and of itself? I already asked you do, you, do you view yourself as a prince and princess? But not only you and yourself, do you have this low self-esteem because you're not seeing yourself the way God does? That's, that's one great application. Talk through that. Think through that. No matter what sort of beauty you think you have, God sees you as glorious. How about children in the womb? Are they crowned with glory and honor? How about elderly people? Are they just sucking resources out of the rest of us? How about children? Babies? You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. It's a good translation. Out of even infants. Right now would be a great time for baby to start crying. and Be like, yes, praise God. Infants crying. Moms, dads, all the young families here as you're caring for babies, nursery workers. This needs to transform the way we view children. How do we view those of different ethnicities? Why should we celebrate what Martin Luther King Jr. did for this country to rise up a movement of people that says, we will take this no more. We are all made in the image of God. All of this is flowing, I hope you see, out of this wonderful teaching. So, I wish we could give more on that, but we need to now turn to Daniel 6 and 7. So, let's turn our Bibles there with that basic idea in mind of what Son of Man conjures up in terms of Psalm 8. Now, we're going to see the Son of Man phrase in Daniel 7, but first, there's a parallel story in Daniel 6. And since we're overviewing all of Daniel, I want to just work through this text, make a few brief comments, quick applications, and then dive into Daniel 7. And these stories are put together for a reason, and you'll see that hopefully very shortly. So it begins in verse 1 of Daniel 6 on page 743. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom, 120 satraps, which let's just say government official, to be throughout the whole kingdom. If you don't know so far in the story, Darius is the king of Medo-Persia, the Persian Empire. If you know anything about your world history, you'll know that Babylon was a giant empire with massive power, military strength, and might, and they were taken out by the Persians. We're now at that time. The Persians are now in control of what was formerly Babylon. And now that he is the king... Over this new, vast kingdom, he is going to now set up his government. And he's going to put 120 officials throughout the whole kingdom. Verse 2, over top of those 120, let's say, governors, mayors, over them will be three high high-off officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss which means Daniel is still alive. And if you remember back from chapter one, Daniel was a teenager when the Babylonian deportation happened. So estimated guess is right now, Daniel's about 80 to 90 years old. I love how this book spans the life of Daniel in such a way that, hey, teenagers, read Daniel. Hey, those in retirement age, read Daniel. Think through what this man does in his life because he gives us wonderful examples for sure But ultimately, he points us to something much greater, as we will see. Verse 3. Then Daniel became distinguished above the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel is in his 80s and 90s, and he is kicking it, man. He is not retiring and coasting. He is still top dog. Three different guys are put over top of these 120 governor mayor type people all over the kingdom. Of those three, one of them rises to the top. Do you remember when he was a teenager and it said that he was 10 times better than everyone else around him? He's he's still that kind of guy. The king, Darius, now notices this. His reputation has gone before him, and now his actions are demonstrating that this Daniel guy has something going, and it says that there's an excellent spirit in him. God is certainly empowering him throughout this story. And so how are these other two men that were at one point equal position with Daniel going to feel about this old guy now becoming their superior? And the king having a plan to say, I'm going to share the kingdom with you. Which at this point, think soulmate. Share the kingdom with someone. Be my right hand man. Let's work together to oversee and rule and have dominion. Well, these other officials in verse 4, they sought to find a ground against Daniel with regards to the kingdom, but they could not find any ground of complaint or fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Oh my, if only that could be true of us! How many politicians is that true of in our current Democratic Republic of the United States of America? In our most recent Supreme Court election, could you imagine almost anybody with the modern day research that can be done through the internet that gets dug up and say, hey, nothing can be found of Supreme Court justice so-and-so? They will pull up anything, won't they? Imagine that scene that just happened in the United States. That's what was going on here, except they couldn't find a single thing on Daniel because it says he was faithful faithful not just for a couple days. Remember, he's an old man now. He's been faithful for decades. Friends, this is somebody that we should dare to be like, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago. This is quite an example for us. No fault was found. So then the men concluded, well, verse 5, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find in connection with the law of his God. So they're going to use his strict religious commitments against him. And so in verse 6, these high officials and satraps came by agreement and the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes any petition or prayer to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, they shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked." Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So you're going to see that phrase again, according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And it basically means that there's a law, and when a law is made, the king has to submit under it. He's not above the law, he's below the law. That's the way this government system was set up. And so they use that against him, and they use the pride of the king against Daniel and against the king. Because the king, he likes Daniel, by the way. He's in favor of him. He just made him the second-hand man to the whole kingdom and says, hey, let's work together here, and now these men are going to undermine that work. and The king doesn't know it. He says, hey, we know that Daniel prays, and if we can make a rule that he prays to his God again and that gets him into the lion's den, then we'll get rid of Daniel and we'll next be next in line. You see what's going on here. So then, look at verse 10. When Daniel knew... He found out that this document had been signed. What should he do? Now, let's be honest for a moment. Put yourself in this story. You're in your 80s and 90s. Like, you've been faithful. There is no command in the Old Testament anywhere that says that you have to pray three times a day. There is no command in the Old Testament that says you have to pray toward Jerusalem. There is no command in the Old Testament that says you have to pray in public. So why does Daniel... Continue his routine of praying just like he always had, in public, by window, three times a day, to his God, Yahweh, facing Jerusalem. He knew the document had been signed, so he goes to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. And of course, these spies and these men are watching. That's what the whole point was. And they came and they found him making his petition. In verse 11, verse 12, they came near and said to the king, O king, did you not sign that injunction? And the king then realized, "Uh uh-oh. My buddy Daniel, I just set him up. And they reminded him, Daniel, one of the exiles, verse 13, He pays no attention to your laws, O king, and to the injunction that you have signed. He makes his petition to his God three times a day. So the king, when he heard these words, was distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. This king is the most powerful, resourceful leader in the world at this point. Think the President of the United States, but maybe even greater than that. In terms of power and resources and influence. He now wants to do everything he can to try and save and rescue Daniel. But he can't. Because there's only one who can. And it's not the king of Persia. So he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Verse 15, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that this is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you because he tried everything he could and couldn't. And then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went into his palace and spent the night fasting, no diversions, Basically, no amusements. He wasn't entertained that night. And then he slept. He couldn't sleep. It fled from him. Then, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And at that point, you got to wonder what the king's said. Anything could have happened? And then that voice, Daniel says to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel. My God sent his angel. Does this story sound familiar, by the way, with another story in Daniel? There's some similarities and some differences. There's a story in Daniel chapter 3 where Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Are commanded that they need to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar, and that if you don't bow down, you're going to be thrown not into a den of lions, but into a fiery furnace. And then, in the fiery furnace, there is what seems like a spiritual, godlike creature down there with the three men. And they get out, and they're not singed to one bit. None of their clothes are burned, none of their body is burned, and they're delivered, they're rescued. And then they're lifted and appointed to a higher position in authority in the story. One big difference, though, is Daniel was not doing something, not not disobeying a command. So committing a, a, a sin of commission in the eyes of the Babylonian, it was a sin of omission. The idea here is that he was praying when he was not supposed to. So there's some differences and there's some similarities, and I showed you last week a chart that shows that three and six parallel one another in this chiastic structure of this middle section of the book. So what we find here is, again, someone is with Daniel, and who is the angel of the Lord? And the short answer, just like every other Sunday school question, is it's it's Jesus, but that's my take on it. Jesus shut the lion's mouth, and they did not harm Daniel. And then here's the reason, because he was found blameless before him. And also before you, you, O king, I have done no harm. And this made the king exceedingly glad, you'll see in verse 23. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they... Their children and their wives, this is the part they leave out, the children's stories, by the way, that the guys that set up this whole thing ended up having they, their children, and their wives thrown into the den of lions, and before they even reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. Talk about a reversal of fortunes. Talk about a plan that you thought was going to work well that did not go so well at all. And the little bit of background that you probably need to know about this is that in this society and time, if somebody survives some sort of miraculous thing like this den of lions, then it's going to be only because they were actually innocent and not guilty. And that was a concept that they would have had. So therefore, the accusers were wrong, and the man that got out, he was actually righteous. And so that's why he was able to go back against the, the law of the Persians. So... Verse 25 then continues, the king Darius then wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell on the earth. Keep that phrase in your mind. Nations, languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He delivers and rescues, not the king, right? He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So what's the quick recap of that story? A man, a human, a son of man if you want to call him that. He was faithful. He trusted in his God. And what did that faithfulness get him in praying? Well... He was grabbed and taken and thrown into a den of lions. And it seemed like he was going to die, certain death. But his God resurrected him from the dead. And then he was appointed as the right hand man over all of the kingdoms and prospered. Then you go into Daniel chapter 7, and the whole book shifts. From nice, awesome stories that we love to tell our children, to the part that many preachers, by the way, when they're preaching through Daniel, they just do Daniel 1 through6 and say, "Oh, let's forget seven through 12." Now why do they do that? Because the book of Daniel could be divided another way. I gave you an outline last week. I'll give you another outline this way this week. Daniel 1 through6 is narrative. Daniel 7 through 12 are dreams, apocalyptic dreams, not the sort of literature that you and I read on a normal Saturday Sunday. Not the sort of literature that we read anytime, time, lest some of us are here reading the Bible. In Daniel's day, this was common literature. One of the biggest misconceptions and reasons why these chapters, as we're about to dive into them, get so explosive and divisive, and there's all these arguments, is because many people quickly assume that Daniel's 7 through 12 is just future-oriented prophecy. And I want to suggest that when you read Daniel 7-12 through or you read the book of Revelation or other books that have this apocalyptic, metaphorical, symbolic-like language, what it is doing is not necessarily only predicting the future, but rather it is unveiling the present with the future. It is about something is masked and it's peeling back what's really happening. Think of the story of the Wizard of Oz and there's that great wizard, and there's really no wizard, you go behind and the dog pulls behind the curtain, it's like, oh, it's just a man. Daniel 7 through 12 is that sort of moment. It's a dream kind of peeling back what's really behind the curtain. And it's unveiling. The word apocalypse means to reveal something that's not seen. It's hidden. So there's, there's a reality, a truth to what's going on in the book of Daniel that you've not noticed. And then the dream is going to clarify the previous chapters, especially the last story. So, so many people, they just say, okay, one through six, okay, we're done with that. Those were cool stories. Daniel's great, we should be like Daniel. Okay, now we're just gonna think about end times and prophecy, that's Daniel 7 through 12. Horrible way to read that book. These things are put together for a reason. You're supposed to read 7 through 12 in light of one through six. Watch, let's start seven. Verse one, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. what, What time frame is this? king of Babylon. Remember last chapter? Babylon's wiped out. So this is actually like a foreshadowing uh, or a backtrack, right? A a dream that happened a while ago. So this is not chronologically Daniel 6 and then okay later Daniel 7. No, this is back during the time of Babylon. So just make sure you keep that in mind. Daniel's going to tell us about a dream he had and visions in his head as he laid in his bed. And it sounds like Dr. Seuss. Dreams in my head as I lay in my bed. Anyway, then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, by the way, this is starting getting really weird, but you've had weird dreams too, so just remember, we're talking about dreams. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, You need to understand that Babylonian culture is where Daniel is right now when this dream is happening. And Babylonians have a Genesis 1 and 2 story about how the world was created. Except their story is about two gods fighting each other, Marduk and Tiamat. Tiamat is the god of the sea. Marduk is the god of the land. Marduk beats Tiamat and Tiamat then becomes the heavens and the earth and whatever else. And so the sea for Babylonians was chaos, evil, and destruction. When you read sea, you should think evil, a symbol of what is wrong with the world. That's what's going on here. By the way, fast forward to Revelation 21 when it says that I saw the new heavens and new earth and there was no more sea. That's basically saying there's no more chaos and evil and destruction. It's not saying there's no more water. Just clarify. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, verse 3 says, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked and its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast. A second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things, boastful, proud things, if you want to think of it that way. So, so far, Hopefully you all can agree, yeah, that's weird, that's different, what all is going on, why is that relevant to my everyday life, let's get to the point. You just have to hold on, okay, because Daniel's actually going to ask for an interpretation, and if we keep reading, you're going to find out exactly what all of that meant, and then you're going to find that it actually does apply to our lives. Like, this is fantastic, it's really good, but it's going to take some work, so don't fall asleep. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed. I want to make sure you catch the language there. As I looked, how many thrones were placed? At least two. More than one, right? Thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat on presumably one of the thrones. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and wheels where burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And then the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. It's a courtroom scene, right? You have at least two thrones and the Ancient of Days. That's a a phrase talking about God, talking about his eternal wisdom. It doesn't mean he's this old, gray-haired, white-haired man. It's talking about the idea of a picture. God is an invisible reality. He is a spirit. So do not think God literally is sitting on a throne in a human body with white hair. That's not how to read this. John chapter 4, God is spirit. He is invisible. But how do we grasp our mind around who he is and what he's like? symbolic imagery like this. He is eternally wise beyond all wisdom. He is the ancient of days and everyone is worshiping and bowing before him. And then this throne picture is the language from Ezekiel, which I don't have time to unpack, but it's basically talking about the chariot uh, and the fiery throne if you read Ezekiel and you'll find out that it has to do with like the temple, etc. Anyway, to verse 11, you'll then see that he saw What's the sound of great words from the horn that was speaking? Remember that little horn that was speaking all those proud and boastful words earlier? And as I looked, the beast was killed. And all week long, I just have to confess, I've had beauty in the beast in my head. Kill the beast. Uh, kill the beast. And then its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was also taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then he keeps going, and he saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one, and then here's our phrase, like a son of man. And then he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and glory, and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one, that shall not be destroyed. Thrones, at least two, right? Ancient of days, now son of man. What does the phrase son of man mean so far in the Hebrew scriptures? A human. So a human-like, notice that it says like a son of man. So he is human-like, he's human on the one hand, but then on the other hand, he's god-like. He is in the clouds of heaven. Every time you see clouds in the Old Testament, it is the presence of God Almighty. So a god-human comes to the ancient of days, and that god-human is given rule and power and authority over all. Are you all following so far? little head nod? Yes? Hopefully you know why. Every time Jesus talks about himself, he calls himself the Son of Man. Almost every time. His primary way of referring to himself is the Son of Man this is the story that you have to have in your background to understand the reference of the son of man when jesus makes it as we'll see in just a few moments so let's interpret this dream and see why this is so helpful for us verse 15 as for me daniel my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Anybody want to say, yeah, that would alarm me too. That was a little scary. That's a nightmare. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. One of those who stood there, I'm assuming because of that courtroom language, is talking about the divine counsel, so it's probably some sort of angelic creature to some degree. And so he approached one, and then he said, what the interpretation of these things were. And by the way, let me just pause real quick and say, this is why I told you what I just did before we started reading Daniel 7. How should we understand to read apocalyptic literature? Well, thankfully, the Bible helps interpret the Bible. We don't have to guess how to interpret these things. It's going to interpret for us right now. This then becomes the tool for how you then read the whole book of Revelation. Not this particular passage, but how the angel is explaining the dream is how then you should understand to read the symbolic language of apocalyptic literature. That's that's my basic rule of thumb for why I said what I did, so now let's see what the angel says. He says the four great beasts are four kings who shall rise up out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which I devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before, which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke with great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Then he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of his kingdom ten kings shall rise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and put down three kings. He shall speak words amongst, against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. Have you heard of a story about beasts terrorizing the people of Israel. You ever read a story in recent days or weeks at Embassy Church about kingdoms, four different kingdoms, that are gonna rise up from the earth and they're going to terrorize God's people? Have you ever heard of a story about the people of Israel being vindicated, even though it seems like they're defeated they're actually vindicated and rescued and delivered from these four kingdoms, and that there would be another kingdom that lasts forever and ever. Have you ever ever heard that story before? Well, if you read Daniel 1-6, through yes, you have. Just think of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel was thrown into the beasts. During the time of the Babylonian and Persian empires, we saw thrown into the den of fires. We saw the Babylonian king turn into a beast. All of this should come together as you start to understand that Daniel 7 is helping interpret and understand Daniel 1 through 6. There'll be all kinds of kingdoms, all kinds of rulers, all kinds of evil that rises up from the earth. And faithful people, innocent ones, will still be judged. They'll still be sent to the gallows and killed and thrown into the fiery furnace and thrown into the den of lions. But you trust your God. He will win. Victory will be those who are the saints of the Most High. Who are the saints of the Most High? It's Daniel and his friends and all the Israelites that were faithful in Daniel 1-6. through It's the Israelite people. And there will be one representative of Israel that will typify this story unlike any other. His name is, of course, Jesus, the great Son of Man. So let's now turn to what we saw earlier. Matthew chapter 26. One example. There are lots of examples of how the New Testament authors apply Daniel 7 to Jesus. But why don't we look at Jesus himself at the very point that turned from him living to then him dying. And you see that because of him using this story, at this moment, they utter blasphemy. Verse 57 of Daniel 26 on page 833 says, Then those who seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, You need to think in terms of Jewish worldview, this is the anointed one. This person, the Caiaphas guy, would have been thought of as the Christ. So if somebody else is going around and saying that they're the anointed high priest over the nation, there's a little battle, right? Who's really going to be the true Messiah? And so Peter's following along, you see, and then verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony about Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Sound similar to Daniel 6? Anyone? The faithful one, the innocent one, is still being persecuted. Just like in Daniel 6, so are the Israelites being persecuted. The faithful, true, and truest of true Israelites, Jesus. And so they had come forward and talked about the temple being destroyed. And then Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said, just let's cut to the chase. Tell us, are you the Messiah, the anointed Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, look, that's what you said. But let me tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you get it now? do you get why the very next verse says that the high priest ripped his robe and said he has uttered blasphemy and he says what else do we need what is your all's judgment and they say he deserves death why would jesus deserve death for saying that he is the son of man at the right hand who is coming with the clouds of heaven because they know daniel 7. these men have memorized the bible backwards and forwards it's the high priest Okay, this is like the Bible scholar of Bible scholars has it memorized frontwards and backwards. He knows that Jesus just referenced Daniel 7. So who is the son of man in Daniel 7? The one who is co-equal with the ancient of days. The one who's being given dominion and authority over all kingdoms and will destroy all the beasts. Another way to think of it is that Jesus, by referencing Daniel 7, is calling all of the false teachers of the nation of Israel, they're the beasts, and he is the true son of man who's going to destroy their kingdom. And that's exactly what he does by giving up his life and dying on a cross. What is your judgment? He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him and they slapped him and they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And you read the rest of the story and he dies hanging on a cross. And they thought they won. Just like those guys thought they beat Daniel. But their winning was their undoing. Jesus conquered through being conquered. Who is the Son of Man? It is Jesus, the Christ, who is the beast. It is every evil that has come up. Do not think that these evil kingdoms are just the ones historically that were around the time of Daniel. They're more like the weeds in the garden that every spring keep popping up again and again and again. It is an unveiling of every distorted kingdom that rises up out of the evil chaotic waters of this world. Right now, there are plenty of beastly kingdoms all around us, some of them right here in the United States, some of them all around the world. And you, my friend, when you are being persecuted, when you are being challenged, when you are being tempted to not be faithful to the end like Daniel was, you can know that your God will vindicate you because he did that to Jesus, the true Son of Man. Already now, he is reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father, seated at his throne. Do you see how that vision of Psalm 8 comes to full full fruition? This is the writer of Hebrews. Let's conclude right there. Turn to Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews chapter two ties everything we've just talked about today in one nice paragraph. Starting in verse five, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, to which we are speaking. For it has been testified somewhere, if you've ever forgot a Bible passage, it seems like the writer of Hebrews feels your pain. Somewhere in the Old Testament, somewhere it says this. Does this sound familiar anyone? What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then the writer of Hebrews concludes... Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right there, just pause. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is reflecting? Psalm 8 is the ideal. God and humans will work together, sharing partnership together for how the world will be ruled. How well are humans doing at that? Does it seem like God and humans are in perfect partnership and that the whole earth is being subjected to the rightful rule of the prince and princesses of the creation? No, it seems, if anything, the world is winning. It seems like death is defeating us. It seems like the creation is beating us and we aren't prince and princesses. We are slaves. So the writer of Hebrews keeps going and he says, but every good Bible passage that has a glorious gospel truth begins with a but, just like this one. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he who for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Then he quotes another psalm and I want to read this last line in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood with Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Remember when he asked that question? But right now it doesn't seem like humans are ruling and reigning well with God. Psalm 8 is beautiful, but that's not reality. You know what reality is? One made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, suffered. To taste death for everyone. So that that lifelong slavery to the fear of death that you and I have, that the creation's winning. Is your body breaking down everyone every day? You're feeling a little older, a little colder outside this week? Oh no, it's not working like it used to. We're all headed one step closer to death. We're afraid of death. We get supplements and supplies and whatever we do to delay death. That's the biggest market in the world, is it not? (laughs) Trying to get rid of this great problem called death. The solution comes through the Son of Man, Jesus. Put your hope in him. No longer live in the fear of death. Realize that he is the Psalm 8 vision, restored and renewed. And that therefore, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And what is man that you are mindful of us? And the Son of Man... What is, man, that you are mindful of us, especially after we so wrecked and ruined that beautiful play out of Psalm 8? And Instead of being content with being a prince and princess, we wanted to be king and queen ourselves. Aren't you thankful that the Son of Man, Jesus, suffered in your place? Do you receive it? Do you believe it? Do you exalt it? Do you exalt the reality that he now reigns and rules? Do you live as if that's true? Are you in fear? These are all the things that we need to work through and help each other see day in and day out. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for sending us Jesus the Christ, the Son of Man, the one who is now reigning and ruling at your right hand. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. We glory in Christ and Christ alone. Our hope is found in nothing less but Jesus' blood and his righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Father, we want to thank you now for a name that is worthy to trust, to put our hope and all of our fears can subside they can melt away as we gaze into the glory of the blazing sun the son of man seated at the right hand of the father we pray this in his name amen we're going to remain